0: You're listening to the Dungeons, Dragons, and Psychology Podcast. I know you've heard me talk a lot on the show about running your own homebrew games, and many times that can happen in a setting that already exists or has been fleshed out by other creators. Settings that I've played in include Eberron, Faerun, Tolus and even Earth, just to name a few. But what gives your players a truly unique experience is when you create your own campaign setting. I'm Robert Walker, author of Session Zero, the DMG to writing great campaigns in any system, and this is my show, where I teach collaborative storytellers how to have more immersive campaigns using psychology. And today, we're going to be discussing the fundamentals of developing your own setting with a guest who has a lot of experience in setting development. And it's a name I'm going to guess you already know. Let's get to the interview.
1: Hi, I'm Sean Reynolds, and I am a developer designer at Montecute Games. And before that, I have worked on Pathfinder, DD, and various card games and video games.
0: Yeah, so you've been all over the TRPG space. I can't look at my Mini books on my bookshelves that span pretty much all of the big RPGs that are out there, without seeing your name somewhere. Do you do you have like a running number of how many books you've contributed to? It's got to be over a hundred, right? It
1: certainly is. It was over a hundred a few years ago, but I have lost count. And oh my god! Also, I work for Pathfinder, and so they published... You know, I work for Paizo, and they work right on publishing magazines and stuff for a while too. So, if you count individual issues of Dragon and Dungeon magazine, the number is just and. I don't really have the time in my personal life to go back and, you know, make note of those sort of things. So it's just kind of fallen by the wayside. It is now just a lot. It's been 25 years.
0: Yeah, you've had an incredible career in game development and you've had the opportunity to work for these huge, well-known companies that everybody listening to the show is familiar with. What has that experience been like for you and, and what have you learned along the way about yourself?
1: It's pretty wild because I never really expected to be doing this professionally. I trained to be a teacher. I was all set to become a high school teacher and then took a radical left turn and took a job as the online coordinator for TSR and then fell into game design. And that's what I've been doing since 95, 96. And I've worked for TSR and Wizards of the Coast and Paizo and Upper Deck and Interplay and now Monte Cook Games. And... I've just seen such a broad variation in types of companies and sizes of companies and the sort of products that people create and the volume and the level of engagement with the fan community and presence at conventions. It's just been all over the place. And it's it's really hard to pin down a specific moment of, this is the defining time of my career where this is the most normal. Everything is always just so bizarre at all
0: times. Yeah, that's really impressive. So um, today, our, our main topic is about campaign settings, which you have a ton of experience with. Mm-hmm. Um, so what it takes to create a unique setting for Humber Games to be ran in. And there's really no better person to discuss this with than with you, because all of the settings that I've played in, you've pretty much been a part of. Uh, one of my favorite ones is uh, the Forgotten Realms setting. And you were involved in the book that I still use for many of my games, which was the 2001 Forgotten Realms campaign setting. It won the Origins Award for Best role-playing Game that year. But you've also worked on Pathfinder projects, projects with Monty Cook Games, the Cypher System and Numenera stuff. What would you say when it comes to designing a setting? What's the first step that you need to take when when designing?
1: Well, as a GM, you are GMing, hopefully, because you want to tell a story, not because everyone else is too busy playing and you have, you know, I accept the role of GM because nobody else wants a GM. But if you're GMing, you know, it's a cooperative effort between what the players want to do and what the GM wants to do. And so the GM is creating a world that'll tell certain kinds of stories and not other kinds of stories. And so the first step is to think of what... Do you want to happen in the game world outside of what the players are doing, and give them the opportunity to interact with that? And so, if you can answer those questions, I think that's the healthiest start. I have a, a background in journalism. I was on the newspaper staff of my high school for for two years, and back in the day, they at least taught about asking you know the five questions: who, what, why, when, and where. Mm-hmm. And if you can start thinking of your campaign in terms of those questions, that helps you get a nice uh, sturdy footprint and and foundation for your setting
0: yeah that's that's a very good point actually in, in my book session zero that's something i bring up with uh when you're writing your first campaign is to go through those questions and then to just sort of go through and asking and answering questions of yourself of you know what would the players know what does this world look like what's surrounding the air and and just by asking yourself questions and and writing down what the answers are you can really start to get an idea of what your world looks like and what it feels like right how much time does it take like in the professional setting when you start designing a setting to getting it out and published like what is the I mean everybody thinks like oh I'm gonna run a game in a few months but like if it's a professional aspect it's got to be way way longer than that like how much time is involved in that process
1: So just the design aspect of it, like if you think of a book, so old school people like me who have been writing stuff since the nineties, we tend to think of books in terms of 32 page chunks because Mm -hmm. that's how things were printed back then. Like you couldn't do a book that was in 16 page increments or eight page increments. And so those Mm -hmm. 32 page chunks were called module units because TSR used to publish adventure modules. And so, mm-hmm. you know, typical one would be 32 pages. Um, when I was working at Wizards of the Coast on second and third edition, an in-house designer was expected to be able to write one module unit worth of content in one month. And that was approximately mm-hmm. 20,000 words. So 32 pages about 20,000 words because you have an allotment for maps and art and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, if you think your typical campaign setting is, you know, 240 pages Well, you divide that by 32 and that's how many months you have mm-hmm. um i've been doing this a lot longer now so my my word per day word per month output is significantly higher um i could probably easily manage one and a half and per month maybe two if i'm mm-hmm. really focused um but some people are just really really fast at it bruce cordell my my friend and colleague at tsr wizards and monaco games mm-hmm. he routinely does 60 pages a month. It's it's ridiculous how much high-quality stuff he can write. Hmm. But that's just the design of it. Because when the design is done, then you roll it over to an editor. An editor has generally at least a month to six weeks to look at it, depending on the size of the manuscript. I'm sure all the editors listening right now are saying, I wish I could get more more time for that. (laughs) Then it comes back. Their edits come back to the designer, and the designer reviews their editing comments. And then it goes off to layout. And then meanwhile, the designer has submitted an art order to the art director to have all the art and maps done. And those art pieces and map pieces are coming in and the layout artist is, or the graphic designer is putting all that stuff into a layout program like InDesign. And then when that is finished, it gets proofed by an editor to look for various little typos and things. And then it goes off to the printer and then has to be printed. And then those items get shipped back to the warehouse or the distribution center or the distributors in the industry. So it can be anywhere from nine months to 16 or 18 months, depending Mm -hmm. on the size of the project. It's a little different nowadays, I think, because we've kind of, technology is advanced enough that we can be like, oh, this is done. We just uh, put the PDF on the printer's server and so they can download it. It used to be that they would submit things on prints, like in the TSR and wizards days, 95 to 2001, we're still kind of in transition between, we are literally submitting a print copy to the printer mm. versus we are sending digital photographs of this to the printer to, we are sending PDFs and that's what they will print.
0: Well, and you've seen over your career, a lot of change in the whole publishing atmosphere, uh, realistically, I mean, now it's at a point where anybody can publish a game and there's avenues through all of the major sources, they have sites that you can upload your own adventures, your own settings, your own ideas, yep. and you can take, you know, through the open gaming license or the Orc license, or even at Monty Cook Games, you guys have your own open mm-hmm. license that you're using over there. Can you tell me a little bit about why that's been so important to the community and and what Monty Cook Games is, is doing with that right now?
1: Well, the internet itself has been just a boon to people's creativity. Like when I started at TSR, I was the online guy. And there was a bit of a controversy at the time because TSR had a very hard line stance about what you could and couldn't do. And their stance was, if you write something for D&D, TSR owns that, right. which clearly is not how the law works, but nobody wanted to go and you know, spend the money on lawyers to prove them otherwise. Um, So fan communities would share materials through uh, file transfer sites and through message boards and that sort of thing. And then when Monty Cook left Wizards of the Coast in the early 2000s, he decided, you know, I'm just going to start writing stuff and publishing PDFs. And this 32-page PDF, uh, I'll charge, how about $5 for that? And people are like, yes, I will buy a $5 PDF that's 32 mm-hmm. pages. That sounds great. And so that just kind of became the standard. And nowadays, through things like DMs Guild and the Cypher System Online License or whatever, people can just write and publish their own material. And most software, by default, can save as or print to a PDF file. So mm-hmm. you don't need to have you know a person who has professional graphic design skills. You don't need to have a connection to a printer. You don't have you even have to have a print run for your books. You can just say, I'm going to make a fun little 16-page adventure about it. we are plant people trying to run away from you know a, a harvesting machine. And you can mm-hmm. make a little RPG, have your friends illustrate it, or you know, maybe if you're lucky, pay somebody to illustrate it and make it into a PDF, and it's available for sale.
0: It's, it's an entirely different world. And more than that right now with the advances in AI technology and AI imaging, like it, it really for some people it is becoming a task that one person can complete on their own just through the use of of you know computer aids and and all those kind of things so it's a, i think we're going to see a really interesting movement forward in individual creativity in the industry and I, i'm kind of excited about it i know some people are worried about it but i i am looking forward to seeing all the adventures that people come up with
1: it's certainly an interesting place to be where in an industry where you normally have a designer who wears a designer hat and an editor who wears an editor hat an artist who are an artist hat and mm-hmm. graphic designers who are a graphic designer hat and all of those people work on the book in different stages and they bring their expertise and the end is a professionally made project product you know book or box set or whatever it is versus someone who just has a really cool creative idea and they don't necessarily have all the professional-level skills for that, but they want to make it happen. And I have done self-publishing. I have done a little 48-page, 64-page PDF for multiple systems. I've done uh, three books in a series for a little RBG that I made. And if you're wearing all those hats yourself, it's really... It's surprisingly time-consuming yeah, to yeah. do all those steps yourself. It's really nice to say, I have written this thing. I'm going to pass it off to somebody <laughs> else, and now I'm going yeah. to sleep for four days. Right. You don't really have that option. I think a lot of people who are doing their own stuff, whether they are just publishing it on their own and hoping to get sales, or if they are crowdfunding it through Kickstarter or Backerkit or whatever, you can kind of see that, that newbie level of, oh, I'm really excited, and I'm going to get this book done in two months. The reality is, no, that's not going to happen because it just, (laughs) everyone gets excited and you don't really, if you, until you've done it, you don't know how much time it takes, but it's that excitement. It's that passion is what is important. I just, as a little anecdote, when I worked at Paizo on Pathfinder, there are a lot of people who really like psionic Mm -hmm. content for the game, for D&D or for Pathfinder. Yeah,
0: we've got a couple in our group. Yeah, for sure.
1: And they would always ask us, like, well, when are you going to do psionics book? When are you going to do some psionics stuff for Pathfinder? But there is nobody on staff at Paizo who is really super excited about doing psionics. And for my personal experience and working with other designers and, and freelance designers, if someone isn't excited about what they're working on, it's going to show in the product that it's, mm. that passion isn't there. And since we didn't have anybody who was really gung-ho about making a sci-fi book and championing a sci-fi book, we decided, you know what? Pathfinder's published through the OGL. Other people can make Pathfinder-compatible sci-fi stuff. Mm-hmm. And if they're that excited about doing it, it'll show in the work that they do. We would rather have somebody who's really good at that and really excited about it than have us do it just because we think it will sell. We want to make books that we want to be excited about.
0: I think that's such valuable information is, is to kind of focus on what you are passionate about because you're right. The things that you're passionate about, you did, you dedicate a lot more time to, you put a lot more of your personal energy into, and it shows in, in every aspect of it. You like, if you're a DM and you're excited about running a game, your players feel it, you know, they can tell how excited you are to share your world with them. If it's something you're not really interested in running, the game's not going to be very fun. So that makes a lot of sense to me. Right. Um, how important do you think it is for a designer, especially like a DM at a table who's designing a setting, to incorporate feedback from their players or preferences from their players when they're doing their creation process?
1: Oh, definitely. It's very important. Um, I mean, the the role of playtesting, whether you're calling it a playtest or not, is a vital part of the process. Like, You need to have either somebody playing through it or somebody with a critical eye, whether that's a developer or a sensitivity reader or, or, or something like that, to look at your material because there's always stuff in your head that didn't make it onto the page. Mm-hmm. And there's always stuff that you know you just kind of assume as part of the, like the background radiation of your, your world and your design process that doesn't necessarily come across in the book. And so playtest your feedback. They'll tell you stuff like, well, my character is an elf. Where do elves come from in this setting? And you might have never thought of that. Like, well, they come from the elf lands. Well, where are those? Uh, I didn't put that on the map. You know, well, maybe elves are mostly died out. And there's only 30 of them left. That greatly changes the dynamic of elves right. in this setting. Um, so part of my job as a... My title is designer developer, which means I do design, but I also do a very detailed review of most of the stuff that comes out from MCG. Um, and I say I do most of that because... I don't develop my own stuff, and so Bruce or Monty or Shauna or Dominique might mm-hmm. develop something that I write. Um, but part of my part of the role of a developer is to look at the text with that level of scrutiny, like an editor looks for typos and grammatical errors and things that are contradictions within you know the the actual wording. But a developer looks at it from a perspective of world building and story and mm-hmm. adventure design and how it interacts with the game mechanics and your players are doing that they may not like consciously be thinking of it in terms of development but the players who go and find loopholes in your rules and who find exploits in your rules those are development concepts Mm -hmm. how can things be broken and so if your player says you know i can't do this I, i should be able to do this or how come this option that i've given from the background of my character doesn't actually make that background more feasible uh, so yeah, it's, it's very important. It's like, if, if you're playing, if you're running a game for a group of players, and you're not listening to what they have to say, you might as well just write a novel, right? Because you're just presenting the story that you want to tell. And they have their, you know, perspectives and their different angles of coming in it, too. But you always should tailor your perceptions of their feedback. Cause sometimes their feedback is stuff like, well, I think this should be more powerful. And the answer is not always, Oh, I'll make it more powerful. Right. <laughs> um, there's a really great analogy. Uh, Richard Garfield, who invented the magic gathering game. Uh, he and I, I was at wizards of the coast when, when he was working there and he had a note on his office that said, uh, so when in, using the, the game of rock, paper, scissors as the example. So in that game, Rock defeats scissors, scissors defeats paper and paper defeats rock. Mm -hmm. So he says, when rock tells you that paper is too good, you could ignore that because that's paper's job is to defeat rock. But when scissors (laughs) tells you that paper is too good, you're like, oh, scissors always beats paper and scissors is still telling you that's too good. That's a sign of important feedback you need to take into account.
0: That's a fascinating uh, anecdote there, and it does make a lot of sense, especially early on in Magic the Gathering when the cards were a little bit more limited and the availability of, of interactive actions and things like that was a little more limited. It did seem that everything had its counter and was sort of built on that concept that you're mentioning, which is really fascinating, but actually leads me to another interesting thing with RPGs to ask you about since I've got you on here and you're kind of alluding to the idea already, which is, The idea of of like availability ramp or rules ramp, as more supplements are built for a system, there always becomes that, you know, how does this rule, new rule interact with the old rules? And how does this feat play off of that feat? How hard is that to keep track of as you're developing new products?
1: It is very hard. It eventually becomes impossible because there's no way that one person can keep in their head. Thousands of pages of rules content, right? And as the the main developer at Paizo, I often had the editors for the Pathfinder various Pathfinder lines come to me and say, "Well, how does this work with this thing?" Mm. And often my response would just be, "You need to make a ruling."
0: Yeah, <laughs>
1: and that's the things Monte used to say that the GM is not a robot. You know, the GM's job is not to just, I am parsing rules. How does this work together? This is the (laughs) answer. That's not what the the job of the GM is. The job of the GM is to be a person and think about how in the greater scheme of things, not just in terms of the rules, but how this affects the setting and how this affects the fun of the gameplay. Right. And if you find some weird combo that's like, oh, I'm a first level warrior and I'm able to do 100 points of damage when normally a warrior may do, you know, 10 or 15, Mm -hmm. you're like, you know what? That's not what the rules intended. You have found a loophole. We're going to fix that. Sorry. We'll let you make some changes yeah. to your character if you want. But like that's that's not part of the fun. Like We understand that some people, their idea of fun is finding those min-max options. Yeah. But the GM also and the designer have to take into account everybody else who's playing, not just at that table, but everybody else who's playing that game. And then using Pathfinders as an example, if some book comes out and they're is a new feat or item or whatever that lets that first level warrior do a hundred points of damage, it doesn't just affect the one table that discovers that. That news is gonna get out. And it's oh, gonna yeah. affect thousands of organized play tables and other home games and that sort of mm-hmm. thing. So it's a big disruption. And so you really need to just be open to the idea that to use a software term, sometimes your software will crash. And you need to <laughs> reboot. And go, where's the problem with this? Oh, I've got this other extension that's doing something weird. Let's kill that process and kind of tone it down
0: a little bit. Do you feel like for a game system, there is sort of like a point of imminent collapse where it it becomes that there's so many new supplemental rules, there's so much stuff that's been out there that doing a new addition or moving on to a new system is sort of like an inevitable uh, evolution of the game?
1: Yeah, I mean, you hear people refer, refer to rules float. It is a real thing. You'll have situations where you will discover a new niche in the rules that can be written about and that's fun to explore. But eventually you hit the point where like, oh, this is just yet another ogre-like creature that's really strong. This Mm -hmm. is yet another dragon. This is yet another fire spell. Is there an opportunity here for us to cool down on the rules content that we're doing and focus more on setting while we think about how to do a reboot or, or a new edition? And it's funny because... I've worked on D&D and on Pathfinder, and I was around for multiple iterations of those settings, or at least discussions of, hey, it's about time to start having those discussions. Mm-hmm. And those are, those are big deals for D&D and for Pathfinder. But other game systems, they do reboots and updates far more often. Yeah. And they're used to it. Call of Cthulhu was like on, I don't know, I think <laughs> when 3rd edition came out, they were on the 5th or 6th edition of Call of Cthulhu already. Right. But I think it's just because D&D and Pathfinder are so big, and they have such a large audience, and those people are very heavily invested in having, mm-hmm. oh, I've spent $1,000 on my RPG books. I don't want those to become immediately invalidated by a new right. edition of the game. So I get the pushback on it.
0: Well, and there's so much question about what's going to be backwards compatible and what's yeah. going to move forward. I know, like for my gaming group, when D&D transitioned the Forgotten Realms into fourth edition, we ignored all the changes that they made because we'd been playing in that world already for 15 years and our stories existed in the third edition space, so mm-hmm. we weren't ready for the cataclysm of spell plague and all the changes right. that happened. You know, with all the gods who we had had, you know, personal character interactions with, and all this mm-hmm. sort of thing. So I think I think that's just an important thing to remember that gamers themselves kind of get tied to a system or a setting, and it can be very hard to leave that behind or move on to something new.
1: Yeah, and that's a really that's a perfect example because fourth edition changes to the forgotten realms are not just a case of players coming to the company and saying hey we'd like to see a b and c or the designer saying we're running out of design space a lot of the changes in the forgotten realms for fourth edition came from the fiction department of wizards of the coast mm. and they said our authors are running out of stories to tell in the modern forgotten realms. And so the result of that was they decided to push the timeline forward 100 years, mm-hmm. which unfortunately meant that every single human character that people were playing was probably dead at that
0: yeah, point. Yeah, exactly. So that's
1: just a radical change, a radical reboot was not the most popular thing. Uh, and so I get why there's pushback about it, but it's just, it's an interesting point because that was feedback not from people who play the game, but mm-hmm. from people who do an entirely different sort of customer facing item novels and they were complaining about that and there's no reason why the books department couldn't have said we're going to start writing more novels in the past or we're going to jump 50 years in the future and start writing about this and give people time to mm-hmm. work up to that as opposed to we're changing the rules we're changing the setting and the stories are going to take a place in there it's a it's a weird thing and it's the same sort of problem that has happened to dragon lance a lot it's like oh we need to reboot dragon we're going to change up the timeline we're going to radically alter what game system it's using You know, because Dragonlance went from first edition to second edition to third edition to the fifth age game and this other game. And so there's just so, so many changes going on. I used to joke that the Dragonlance setting has the most fickle gods in any campaign setting because they have some sort of apocalypse about every five to 20 years. It's like, if if, if you lived in that world, you'd be like, thanks, gods. Just blow the world again. I'm just trying to farm here, man.
0: Yeah, it's it's very Greek in its deities. They're so Uh, petty. It's really interesting, though, because that whole whole Forgotten Realms thing was just so jarring to us as players that it put a bad taste in our mouth for 4th edition. And despite the fact that 4th edition had some really cool concepts in it, like skill challenges and things like that, which I thought were really brilliant, and we've incorporated those. But it it pushed us towards Pathfinder, and and then we made a big shift to playing in Pathfinder for the long—I mean, honestly, that's still—Pathfinder 1st edition is still what we mostly play with— Although we've branched out, we've done some Cypher system, we've done some uh, Pathfinder 2E, and and we've tried 5th uh, edition. So we're dabbling, but we just have that that sweet spot was kind of that 3.5 in the extensions of that, I think, because that's what our formative years of role-playing happened to be. But you mentioned feedback coming not from players. One, one area of feedback that has been receiving a lot of attention is uh, the idea of cor- cultural sensitivity. And there's been a really positive movement in the gaming space in making the game more accessible to all different kinds of people with all different cultural backgrounds. So from a game design standpoint, can you tell me how how a game designer or a DM could make a setting interesting and create unique cultures while still considering the importance of real world cultural sensitivity?
1: Wow. Yeah, that's a great question. And for me to come at this from uh, my own personal perspective, like I am a white cis male heterosexual, and I grew up in the eighties playing D and D and I got into the industry in the nineties. And at the time, Gen Con was probably 80 to 90% white males Mm. who were, you know, age 30 and up. And over time, I've seen that demographic change where we have more women, going to Gen Mm -hmm. Con. We have more people of color going to Gen Con, and uh, other game conventions like Gen Con have grown and welcomed other parts of the human community other than just white males. There's been people who fight it every step of the way. There's people who say, you know what, I should be able to... Like In my game, women have limits on their strength score, because historically, women have lower (laughs) strength than men do. And, you know, well... He is a gender neutral term. So you should write all of your books saying he and his, and oh, women yeah, should just understand. Second
0: it. edition pitfall there, huh?
1: Yeah. <laughs> look, we have that
0: issue with third edition DD
1: and with Pathfinder because mm-hmm. third edition DD gave iconic characters for each of the classes. And when you are writing about that class, you refer to that class's gender. Mm-hmm. And Pathfinder did that as well. And Pathfinder's iconics were. A different gender than the D one, so you'd have the DD cleric and he is a human priest named jozan and the pathfinder cleric i believe is a a woman and she worships seren ray um mm-hmm. but like the, just the change up of the pronouns really freaked a lot of people out It's like you're being really inconsistent <laughs> and this is not this was, you're having bad editing. and it's like no we're trying to show that hey you can actually have different gender forms for you know for whatever um and then Paizo introduced a, a trans iconic and a non-binary iconic and, the, and iconics who were not straight. And sort of, again, some people freaked out about that and some people like, oh, you were actually talking to me. Like there right. are trans gamers. There are non-binary gamers. or like, you are actually trying to welcome me into this community. Mm-hmm. Um, but me as a cis, white, heterosexual male person, I have to be very, very careful because I don't want to offend people. Like right. I am... I'm a nice person. I'm a grumpy, nice person, but I don't want to make (laughs) people feel unhappy. I don't want people to feel unwelcome. And so, so much of the stuff that I've been writing for the past five to 10 years is actually either like so far beyond modern culture that it doesn't even relate. Like I, I would never, let me roll that back. I have not been in a position where like, oh, I'm creating a cultural analog for Pre-colonization Africa. Mm-hmm. Am I in a position where I need to worry about presenting stuff with cultural appropriation or you know weird racist tropes and things like that? It's like that's why we have sensitivity re- readers. That is why mm-hmm. we have, you know, diversity in the company. Like I work for MCG and we have, you know, several people of color, and we're about half of us are, are, are women or non-binary. We have various different backgrounds. We employ sensitivity readers for, for our books and i think based on how capitalism works like you can either write something that's for a specific small audience mm. or you can write something and try and reach a larger audience and you can say that like no i'm just going to write for straight white guys and you'll that <laughs> there will people who do that there are people who yeah. you know embrace fringe levels of different beliefs. And they say, I'm not going to worry about this woke crap. I don't, you know, I'm going to use he, him pronouns for everything because that's gender neutral. And you can do that. Or you can say, Hey, you know what? Let's have a bigger tent. Let's have Mm -hmm. more people playing. Let's have more people playing these games, which is where I am. Like, I love the idea of having so many other people invested in, and I don't mean like investing in money. I mean, emotionally invested in this hobby. Like I have been playing these games for 42 years since I was Mm. a kid and it has been a formative part of my life. I have quote unquote left the tabletop industry like two different times. And I always end up coming back because it's just, this is what I love doing. I think in terms of this, and I know there are people like me with that mindset, regardless of their race, their sexual orientation, their, their gender. And so why would I not want to have the opportunity to, run games for or play with or play under a GM who has entirely different perspectives. Like mm-hmm. there's people who doing all these awesome products. Like, Oh, there's these, um, there's a, a crowdfunding project out right now where they have a bunch of people from uh, Asia and Southeast Asia who are making a setting based on their shared culture. And awesome. I would love to read something like that because yeah. they're going to have an entirely different perspective. They're going to have all these incredible insights from growing up in cultures like that here on earth that I'm not even going to know about. And it's just mm-hmm. going to be all new and fascinating to me. It's great. Like, like why would you want to stop learning things? Yeah. You know, I love yeah, learning absolutely. TV, you know, comic books, movies, whatever. It's just like, I'm an infovore. tell me more. I want to learn all this stuff. I'm not going to retain it all, but yes, Come out there. Let's all be gamers together. We can all be, you know, young and old. When I'm retired, I want to be in an old nursing home, rolling some dice with people <laughs> from all over.
0: Yep. Yep. Uh, that's kind of one of the the anecdotes that uh, I always share with people who mentioned to me like, oh, yeah, you're you're over 40 now. You're still playing role playing games. And I say, yes, I absolutely am. And it seems like every year that I grow older, the median age of gamers also grows older with me. So we're all still playing. We're still enjoying the game and loving it. And I think those of us who, who got into it young enough or who come into it later and realize just how... Beneficial the game can be for like your own mental health and the time that you get to spend socializing with your friends yeah. and interacting and laughing your ass to the point of not yeah. being able to breathe sometimes. Like it's just, it, it's, it is such an amazing interaction to have. And I can't imagine a life where you don't have that. Same, same. Yeah. Way. So one, one more question before we move on to tricks of the trade, I want to ask you what advice you'd give to aspiring game designers, uh, who want to create and publish their own setting. What, what would be your, your key piece of advice to them? Well, so you've asked me for
1: a simple answer to a very complex question. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm just going to use what is now my favorite example. I was at Gen Con last year and a young man came up to me and he said, I don't know if you remember me, but I came up to you at Gen Con 2020, and I asked you, how can I get a start in the game industry? And what I told him, and this is him telling me my words back to me, was (laughs) find something that you're passionate about writing about, write it, have somebody edit it, get some art for it, and you can self-publish it as a PDF and sell it on DriveThru and other websites. That's what you do. You don't need to get a publisher. You don't need to get an investment in a print run or all these things. You just need to find that passion in your heart to write and you write and you do it. And so that was him telling me what I said to him two years before. Mm-hmm. And he then hands me an adventure module and says, this is the adventure module that I wrote. It just won an any Award. Oh my. And I was like... <sighs> You know, this is just a brief conversation I had with some gamer who I didn't even know if he knew, if he knew my work. Or he was just like, oh, you work at a game company. Maybe you could give me an answer. Mm-hmm. But I told him, you know, what I felt and he did it and he won an any award. Like, so how cool. cool is that? So, yeah, just do it. There's nothing just stopping do you it. from doing it. And if, if your first effort is not good, that's okay. No one yeah. expects you to be amazing when you first start out. You're going to make some mediocre stuff. You're going to make some bad stuff. Some uh, There's a professional comic book artist. I can't remember their name. But they say everybody has 100 bad comic book pages in them. (laughs) And then you write those and you draw those and you get them out of your system. And then you can work on the good stuff. Everybody goes through that process. So let yourself go through that process. Let yourself suck at something for a while like they say in Adventure Time, like sucking at something is just the start of becoming awesome at something.
0: I love that. All right, let's go ahead and move on to Tricks of the Trade. So for today's Tricks of the Trade, I've asked Sean to come up with a few clever ideas to make your campaign setting truly unique. I also brought one of my own. I'll go ahead and go first, Sean, so you have a moment to gather your thoughts. Uh, My idea is based kind of on, I don't know, I don't know if you remember the Cyclothids listening, remember in the 90s, there was this great game out there that was on PC called Arcanum. And so the setting would be based kind of on that, where there's uh, magic and technology existing in an uneasy balance. And in this setting, player choices along the path of either the magical arts or technological advances would impact the direction of the setting and the world so you might have your players align themselves with either a faction that embraces one or the other and their victories or their losses would tip the balance in the favor of the one they're working towards or the one that they're opposing
1: cool. off the top of my head uh, i like to think about the origins of creatures uh, i have a scientific background i studied chemistry studied a lot of biology and I like to think about where your your player species came from, where mm-hmm. humans, dwarves, and elves. Even if you look at something like Tolkien, like the the Valar created humans, and they created elves through... I'm, I'm drawing a blank on uh, Eru. There you go. Eru Iluvatar uh, through the music of the Ainur. One of them said, that's really cool. I'm going to make my own little people. And so he just decided to forge the dwarves. And so dwarves exist in Middle-earth because one of the Ionor just decided to make them. And Erolidazar said, that's really cool, but we need to, the humans and the elves to be in the world first, so we're going to put your little guys to sleep for a while. So he just kind of like put them unconscious, but then <laughs> animated them. And so dwarves, technically, are an artificially made species. Like He just <laughs> decided and did his own thing. Um, so think about where each of these species comes from in your world. In Pathfinder, elves are from space. They're from another mm-hmm. planet. Gnomes are from another dimension of weird chaos. Like that just brings so much fun baggage to your world mm-hmm. and to anybody who plays a member of that species.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really fun idea. And, and it is interesting to look at all the different settings out there and sort of their different creation stories. I, and that is a great place to start. Like start with what is your creation story? How did your world come to be? How did your races come to be? Very good information there. So before we sign off, I do want to give you the opportunity to share with all the cyclotids who are listening where they can find you on social media and just give you the chance to to talk about, plug anything else that you've got going on right now.
1: Well, right now I am only on Twitter and I'm Sean K. Reynolds on Twitter. And for plugging stuff, uh, oh, I do have a Patreon Uh, which I post content every week, third edition, fifth edition, and Cypher, and a lot of designer commentary on converting between them. Uh, For MCG stuff, I just wrapped up development on The Weird, which is a source book on just bringing weird new ideas to your setting uh, so that things don't get stale. And the next thing I'm working on is the Cypher System Starter Set. Uh, We have a free online version of the cipher system and we've got a Numenera cipher system a Numenera starter set which uses the cipher system but we don't have literally a starter set for the cipher system and I think the fun thing for this is that because you can play any genre of the cipher system this starter set is going to say all right here's how you do fantasy all right here's how you do modern or sci-fi all right, here's how you do supers. So you're not locked into one setting of, oh, this is a fantasy game or this is a sci-fi game or a horror game or whatever. So I want to make this something that anybody can pick up and go, oh, you know what? I'm going to make a post-apocalyptic setting for my next game mm-hmm. or I'm going to do historical fantasy or whatever. So that's my my next fun thing that I'm doing.
0: That is awesome. And Cyclotids, you will have access to those links to Sean and, and the projects. I'll put them on the show notes. So check those out there. Sean, thank you so much for joining me today. This was a true pleasure. I've always wanted to chat with you. This was like a dream come true.
1: Thank you, Robert. And again, I uh, I appreciate you being patient as I was moving to a new house and not very timely and getting back to you, but
0: here are I'm all worked s- Just so thrilled that we finally got to do this. This was a lot of fun. You should have been. Thank again. you so much. I will do it. Let's do it. All right. All right, Cyclothids, let's head over to our knowledge check. Today's knowledge check comes to us from D&D Beyond. It is an article called New Player's Guide Building Your Own Campaign Setting by James Hayek, and it is from April 6th of 2020. So I'm just going to go over a few of the points that they list in this article about creating your own setting. And there's a lot more in the article than I'm going to talk about. So I would suggest checking it out. You will find the link to the article in the show notes as usual. So one of the first pieces of advice that they give in this article, and it's something you've heard on this show before, is to start small. Uh, By this, they mean starting small like just your starting location, a small-scale beginning of your campaign that is basically just a settlement. You're creating the place where your first adventure is going to start, and you're going to build out from there. This is. The same thing that I've told you to do when it comes to creating an adventure is you're going to start with what is your starting location. So it's no different doing it in a complete setting if you're following this guide. After starting small and getting your settlement, they suggest spanning a little bit larger area and getting like a 10 mile zone, maybe like a five mile uh, radius from the center of your settlement or wherever it is that you're starting. And so you'll kind of have a roughly 10-mile space that you know everything in the area. What other villages are in the area? What other towns are in that area? Are there any abandoned settlements or ruins or mysterious locations? Is there a dungeon delve somewhere in that? You can also talk about what is the geography and, and the landscape and all things like that. And after you've fleshed out that 10-mile zone around your starting location, then go larger. Uh, That's when you want to start exploring things. And I suggest, as you heard me talk about on the show before, I always suggest doing this in a manner that you are building the world as you're playing through it. Now, if you're trying to sell a setting on uh, one of the sites where you can upload and make sales, and you're going to have to do a lot more work, obviously. But if this is just for your homebrew game, like we're often talking about here, then all you have to do is build enough for the next session or the next two sessions. You don't have to elaborate the world as like this intricately detailed thing when all your players are going to have about the greater world beyond maybe that small 10-mile setting at first is is general knowledge that you can make up on the fly with your improvisation skills. That's all today, Cyclothids. I just want to say thanks again. To Sean K. Reynolds for coming on the show. I had so much fun chatting with him, and I really do hope that we get to have him on again in the future. Uh, as always, you can leave us a show rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And if you check us out on Instagram at Dungeons underscore Dragons underscore Psychology, you can find a link tree to all of our other various links, as well as if you look at the show notes. On this episode, you can find that link tree and you can also find all of the links to our guests today. So until next time, we'll see you next session.